Hey, this is Matthew Peterson. Welcome to the show. This is a different kind of content. We have the regular show. We have conversations with other people. Uh, the first one was our episode on Caesarism. And related to that, this is the first of uh, our, our courses, our lectures on uh, George Washington and, and the American future. Not the past, the future. And so if you were with me last time, you heard about the importance of Washington, my own questions about what makes him great. He just doesn't rip off the pages as great in the way that everyone else does. At least he didn't for me. Yet I think he's the most significant figure uh, for us now at a time when uh, the very structure of the regime is in question. Uh, he was the, the, the re-founder or the founder of America par excellence. And so we got into his character and last time, we spent a lot of time talking about the 101 rules of civility that he copied out by hand as a child. This time, we fast forward to uh, the American Revolution and its aftermath. Uh, he becomes a hero and becomes a, a, a notable figure and then ends up leading this revolution against uh, perhaps the greatest empire in the world at the time and succeeds. And uh, then helps form the Constitution itself, the structure of the American regime with that regime-level power that he holds instead of taking uh, a different kind of personal power. Uh, and so he shepherds uh, you know, the nation into existence by being a, a general, then by uh, giving his blessing to the Constitution and having his guys uh, you know, reform it. They win that battle, and then, of course, he becomes the first president, and uh, I end this episode fittingly this week, fitting, fittingly this week, uh, with his Thanksgiving Day proclamation, which if you haven't read it, you should. It would be a great thing to do uh, every Thanksgiving to look back on what the man said uh, uh, in the, the first Thanksgiving uh, proclamation. We end there, and then in the next episode, we talk about the presidency and more of his presidency and beyond. Uh, into the into the end of his life. So I hope you enjoy the last one. I know you'll enjoy this one. And if you want to hear more of this kind of content, you know, please let us know. On with the show. So we leave young Washington behind and stop in 1783, uh, reading his circular to the states. What's going on here? What's happened in the intervening years? Uh, well, Washington um, is trying to make money, real estate surveyor. He um, is from a family that's uh, you know decent, but not uh, incredibly wealthy or anything, um, and. He is on the make. He's ambitious. Uh, he becomes a, a hero in sort of these frontier wars, um, really for his bravery, um, because uh, uh, he's, he's, he's clearly brave. He makes this, again, imposing physical presence. Um, so he becomes a, a noted um, you know, celebrity of sorts. He ends up... Um, obviously leading the United States of America uh, in armed rebellion against the greatest power in the world. And when you, you, know, you think about this, you wrap your mind around it, this is the part that people today don't talk about enough. Uh, conservatives have never been comfortable with it. But this was an armed rebellion in which 
Uh, you know, anyone uh, caught who was leading it at the end, uh, everyone knew would be executed uh, potentially under uh, English law. So as a traitor, uh, you know, insurrection, sedition, traitor, uh, the definition of it, uh, these are actual revolutionaries. So he decides to, to throw in, and uh, when you think about the, the daunting nature of that task, uh, you know, the, the, the mind reels, really. I mean, just to psychologically take on um, that force and with everything at stake uh, in that situation, right, he, he rises to that occasion. And if you want to think about the achievement there, uh, you know, just really quickly, you have to imagine what it would be like to be in terrible weather, in the mud, in the snow, with a number of men who you have to convince to stay with you when they're not being paid. Uh, and at home, you know, their livelihoods often depend upon a small farm uh, or farming in general where the seasons matter. And they're losing wealth by the minute. Their wife is managing, uh, you know, their, their estate, their small their small farm, and they can't get back to it. And they're not being paid. And y- y- you don't have anything other than, at the end of the day, the cause and your person to keep them together. And yet they win. We get some help from, of course, France, uh, but... Um, they defeat the British, and uh, the revolution succeeds. Now, during that time, you have a number of uh, soldiers, officers, who are extremely upset with how they've been treated, and uh, they start to, you know, rattle sabers, as they say. I mean, they start to uh, to complain. Uh, someone writes something down, and. You know the whispers are certainly along the lines of we're the we're, we're the armed people. Uh, we did this for the nation, and we should we should take what's ours. Um, you know enough of Congress. Uh, the Congress has been starving us the entire time. Uh, so these are the kind of sentiments bubbling up. It wasn't uh, you know scholars disagree, historians disagree about how close we were to a coup, but certainly those kinds of sentiments were were bubbling up. And certainly, you know, historically, from the outside, you would not have expected what ended up happening to happen. It's sort of an anomaly, right? I mean, what does Washington do? Uh, Washington puts down these sentiments. One of the rebel rousers rousers in, in the officers' corps, he says he should go and meet, and you guys should hash this out. This is unacceptable. Uh, but you guys should publicly, you know, he, he's been public. You should have a public meeting about your discontents, and, and uh, you guys should argue this out, and I won't be there. Uh, so the meeting happens, and then Washington walks in and says, actually, I am coming. I want to say a few words first. And as he's, uh, as he's going to speak, he uh, wants to cite uh, something and read it uh, from a piece of paper. And he fumbles for his glasses and says uh, something about uh, also losing his eyesight for his country, and it makes uh, it makes grown men around him get weepy. Uh, people feel ashamed, and his again just his presence walking in the room puts them in the right frame of mind, and they move in an entirely different direction. It basically, puts down any talk of uh, of taking action against uh, the civilian government. So. Washington in 1783 decides to go back to his farm. Uh, He's going to go back, and he's not going to be involved in the government. And before he does, though, he writes a a meditation on what he thinks the problem is in America and what ought to be done. Um, So he doesn't just disappear to his farm. He actually uses the power and fame he has to say, this is what we need to do. We'll get to that circular in a minute, but this is the occasion where um, the famously uh, King George uh, III uh, said to a, a painter, American, that act closing and finishing what had gone before and viewed in connection with it placed him, Washington, 
in a light the most distinguished of any man living, and that he thought him the greatest character of the age. Um, probably not apocryphal, uh, probably actually actually happened, um, but even if it was apocryphal, it certainly represents a truth. The greatest character of the age. So internationally, people recognize um, the greatness because of the self-command, because of the self-control, because he doesn't advocate, push himself to become the ruler of the country, uh, but he does, go, he does, in fact, go back to his farm. This is the example in ancient history uh, of Cincinnatus, and they even had a, a, a Cincinnatus club, basically, society uh, at the time, and they revered this figure who, in Roman history, was a, you know, a simple man, a farmer, who's brought to be dictator, given supreme powers because he's a good person, he succeeds in his task, and then he goes back to his farm. That's the the ideal. The the original dictator, uh, the actual word, uh, you know, coming from Latin, the original dictator is um, temporary. And the Romans realized that in times of crisis, you need one man in the world uh, to to rise up. Uh, you really do. And so they understood executive power in that way. So the idea was, you would have someone who would come in and assume command and take that power. And then after the crisis was over, um, that person would, uh, you know, so to speak, go back to the farm. Of course, eventually, um, that sort of power uh, is uh, intoxicating and, and uh, someone doesn't go back to the farm. Um, it's very hard to, uh, to contain it. But even the presidency itself, uh, as we'll see, was designed with this idea partially in mind. Um, you know, in practice, the presidency has been elastic uh, during times of crisis. The president generally acts with a lot of power, and then afterwards the Supreme Court uh, shakes, its, uh, shakes its finger at the president and says, no, no, that was very bad. You shouldn't have done those things. Um, that has happened over and over again in our history. In any event, it, with Washington, uh, people look at this, and even at the time, they understand this to be an act of greatness for which he should be justly uh, famous in the old sense, in the sense of uh, fame uh, referring to glory, glorious acts that should be praised were for the sake of the common good, uh, not your sort of Instagram, your IG fame. Uh, this is this is something different, a different understanding, a deeper understanding of channeling that ambition towards uh, the public good. So uh, Washington is, you know, he's decided to go back to the farm, but it's not quite that simple. He knows that he knows his power. He knows his influence, and I, I, I dare say he starts to feel that uh, after succeeding. Um, and you know, there's a lot to be reconciled. Uh, there's a lot to be taken care of after the war. I mean, Congress really screwed him over and over again. The Continental Congress. They didn't provide the funds. He sees the problem, of course, that uh, of having no executive leadership. Uh, he understands executive leadership, um, you know, a, a lot a lot better himself after this experience, and um, there's a lot to be straightened out, so to speak. So is the circular to the states is is where he does this before he, he doesn't just go back to the farm. He says uh, he says first I'm going to go into retirement, uh, but this is what you need to do. So. Uh, just just listen to some of those words. I'm now preparing to resign it into the hands of Congress and to return to that domestic retirement, which it is well known I left with the greatest reluctance, a retirement for which I have never ceased to sigh through a long and painful absence, and in which, remote from the noise and trouble of the world, I meditate to pass the remainder of life in a state of undisturbed repose. Uh, he says this a few times uh, in his life. He's going to go back, you know, he's going to go back to the farm and uh, expresses publicly this desire for a simple life. It reminds me very much of um, every time I, I read it of, uh, of Plato uh, giving this, uh, this myth of Odysseus, uh, the Greek hero who through many travails finally returns home, right? His life is full of adventures uh, but that means also hardship and suffering. And after he's, his, his, his life is over, he's allowed to choose a new life, um, you know, come, come back to life, um, the, the return in ancient Greek myth, and he gets to choose it. So he looks out and he decides to choose 
a pastoral, peaceful life uh, in the country and eagerly you know, looks towards it as a kind of goal. Um, there's a lesson in this, right? I mean, why would you publicly say you need this retirement? Um, he makes a point of saying, this is what I actually desire. I meditate to pass the remainder of life in a state of undisturbed repose. But that is not to be, and it has never been the case. Throughout his life, he's continually, in fact, going towards uh, danger, going towards where the action is, in fact, being asked to do so, and then doing his duty. And in this respect, in 1783, look what he says next. You know, he wants to meditate. I meditate to pass the remainder of life in a state of undisturbed repose. But, but before I carry this resolution into effect, I think it a duty incumbent on me to make this my last official communication, to congratulate you, and also, and also, to express uh, some points of view and advice. So he reminds them that you know he's he's. Um, I'm going to give my uh, final blessing to that country in whose service I have spent. I have spent the prime of my life. Um, you know, he reminds them of his service that he has spent the prime of his life already in the service of this country, which he loves. He's giving his blessing to it. He's not just anyone. Impressed, in, impressed the liveliest sensibility on this pleasing occasion. He also wants to note that um, providence must have played a role here. Um, Washington is not, um, I don't think, traditionally religious. I mean, it's hard to know what was going on in his mind. He would go to church. He didn't go to communion, though. He's sort of silent on, uh, you know, Jesus, uh, Jesus Christ, um, and sort of revelation. But he does talk about providence a lot. Uh, it does seem like he believes in a God, and he certainly believes that uh, religion is necessary, as we'll see, uh, for government. Uh, for the sake of good governments and Republican governance, especially. So he says, you know, we shall have equal occasion to felicitate ourselves on the lot which providence has assigned us, whether we view it in a natural, a political, or moral point of light. Um, so he then lays out the scene. He says, um, you know, citizens of America are in this enviable position. Um, you know, we're lucky. Look what we got. And he keeps on mentioning providence. Um, um, there are from this period to be considered as the actors. They are from this period to be considered as the actors in our most conspicuous theater, which seemed, which seems to be peculiarly designated by providence for the display of human greatness and felicity, happiness. Um, you know, we, we're like actors in a theater now on this vast tract of a continent. And we, we still are on that continent, by the way. Um, the whole continent displays before us which seems to be peculiarly designated by providence for the display of human greatness and felicity, human greatness and happiness. Um, he talks about the blessings which this new nation has uh, and, and the foundation of our empire, um, you know, incorporating into itself um, new truths and old truths alike. Um, the progressive refinement of manners the unbounded extension of commerce, the free cultivation of letters, um, the pure and benign light of revelation. These are all things, the growing liberality of sentiment. All these things are mixed together, um, ameliorating influence on mankind and increased the blessings of society. So, auspicious time for America to come into existence as a nation and he says, look, if the citizens should not be completely free and happy, the fault will be entirely their own. If we screw this up, it's our fault. The, the world is our oyster. Um, so with that, he goes, he, he, he goes through four things, he says, which I humbly conceive are essential to the well-being, I may even venture to say, to the existence of the United States as an independent power. Now think about what he's doing here. It's not just Washington goes back to the farm. Washington goes back to the farm, and he acts on a lot of this, and he writes other things as well. But first, he's saying, you know, while he's walking to the farm, he's saying, this is the four things which I humbly conceive you, entire nation of America, need to do. He knows his voice. He knows his influence. He knows it looms large. And so he lays out a plan and sort of words of advice. And the four things are, number one, an indissoluble 
he says these things are essential to the well-being, I may even venture to say, to the existence of the United States as an independent power. These are the things that are absolutely necessary uh, for us to exist and certainly for us to flourish as a nation. Number one, we need an indissoluble union of the states under one federal head. So look, look at this. I mean, this is the this is the public good. This is an indissoluble union of the states under one federal head. We need to centralize power, right? Otherwise, this thing's going to fall apart. And he's thinking of the structure of government government that he's dealt with. It's not sufficient. He goes right to, uh, you know, the biggest issue: the, the the a real national government, an indissoluble union. He's talking about under one federal head. He's talking about the structure of government at the highest levels. Secondly, a sacred regard to public justice. And here he means he's talking about credit. Uh, he thinks, you know, we are going to be in a very bad way if Congress doesn't pay its debts, um, if we don't pay back the, the debt that we've taken out in order to win this war. Uh, we're going to be, in, and, and the, the, the founders never talk about the economy without using moral language, remember. Uh, so, so a sacred regard to public justice. Third, the adoption of a proper peacetime establishment. And here, um, you know, we need to talk about how, what needs to happen with the military moving forward. Uh, it needs to be just and it needs to be safe. Uh, we, we don't need an anti-military you know, stance. It's not going to get us anywhere. And fourth, the, preve the prevalence of that pacific and friendly disposition among the people of the United States, which will induce them to forget their local prejudices and policies, to make those mutual concessions which are requisite to the general prosperity, and in some instances to sacrifice their individual advantages to the interest of the community. So in other words, we're all going to have to work together. We're going to have to put aside our differences uh, so that we may be one. Right, we're gonna we're gonna have to be one people, and that will involve concession, sacrifice. Um, it's the only way out. And he says these are the pillars on which the glorious fabric of our independency and national character must be supported. Um, we we need this uh, we need this structure. So, uh, you know, he goes on to to fill out what he means by the first three points, and, and uh, he goes in detail. And some of it's very particular policy. Uh, other is other other parts are various general principles, but he's laying out uh, what he thinks uh, needs to be done. Now, at the end, um, he says, um, uh, "Remember, you know, communicate all this these sentiments to your legislature at their next meeting, that they may be considered as the legacy of one who has ardently wished on all occasions to be useful to his country, and who even in the shade of retirement will not fail to implore the divine." benediction upon it. And then he says, I will now make it my earnest prayer that God would have you and the state over which you preside in his holy protection, that he would incline the hearts of the citizens to cultivate a spirit of subordination and obedience to government, to entertain a brotherly affection and love for another, for their fellow citizens of the United States at large, and particularly for their brethren who have served in the field. And finally, that he would most graciously be pleased to dispose us all to do justice, to love mercy, and to demean ourselves with that charity, humility, and pacific temper of mind, which were the characteristics of the divine author of our blessed religion, and without an humble imitation of whose example in these things, we can never hope to be a happy nation. Now, these are not the words of someone who's, you know, just writing a normal op-ed. You know, he's he's imploring the divine benediction upon America. He's laying out the broad-based plan for what should happen. And he's leading the nation in a prayer, uh, you know, in that whole last part, that last paragraph that I just read. Okay, what happens next? Well, he does go back to his farm, but, but, um, but his buddies, uh, his young, ambitious friends... Um, all his, all, all his, all his, all his cronies, everyone realizes that the Continental Congress, uh, not only was that a disaster, but the Articles, the Articles of Confederation, uh, which we wrangle about for a, basically a full decade, states don't want to even even adopt those. Uh, but the Articles of Confederation is a loose con confeder confederation of states, even though I know there's some 
conservatives and libertarians out there still probably say uh, it was a good thing. Um, it wasn't a good thing. It was it was a very unstable situation. Everyone sensible knew uh, this could not be. This could not last. Um, and and so you know we haven't really founded founded. We separated from the mother country, but we had not solidified a a, a form of government in a way that gave anyone a sense that this whole United States of America would remain stable. And so you get your your Hamiltons and your Madisons, and and they're all you know they're all planning on how to do this. They know they need to reform, uh, refound uh, America, and they also know that when they meet, which they have a, an opportunity to, to wrangle, you know, some amendments to the Articles of Confederation, uh, which they know they could use as a time to just refound boldly the country. Uh, they're not even technically supposed to be doing that, right? They're supposed to be just talking about amendments, but they know they can open it up to a complete refounding. But they can't do it if George Washington doesn't show up. And they all know this. And Washington knows this too. So you get your your midwit scholars who they act as if Washington was really vain. Um, I just, I mean, I, I guess that there's an interpretation there. I, I just think it's hilarious. I mean, Washington is is not vain in my view when you read him hemming and hawing about whether he should go and, you know, not really giving a straight answer for a while uh, to his boys because he's got to think through, is this the time to push the go button? If he goes, uh, he instantly gives credibility to the entire affair, to the entire event. Does this make sense? Right. I mean, without him, uh, his imprimatur, it's not as if it's even really official, right? But without without him, uh, it, you know, this is this is much less likely to succeed. And so they implore him to show up, and and finally he does say yes. He goes. Uh, he only speaks twice. He just sits there, but his presence is necessary. Um. You know, I mean, his presence is necessary. He has to preside uh, over this event in order for it to work, number one. Number two, we would not have the presidency, the office of the presidency we do, if it weren't for the fact that Washington was obviously going to become the first president. Let me say that again. We would not have the office of the presidency. It would be much weaker, in fact, if it weren't for the fact that everyone knew George Washington would become the first president, and Washington knew this as well. At the time, um, those who were more inclined towards to be anti-federalists, to be uh, you know, uh, uh, proponents of state power and against a national government, um, you know, they were very suspicious of executive power. After all, we just rebelled against a king, right? So, and also the governors. The governors were, you know, in some cases appointed by uh, the the king. They represented that authority, and the colonists uh, resented it. I mean, this led to a revolution. So, executive authority was not um, was not uh, on the you know on the favorite list for a lot of folks at the time, as smart as they were. And the Federalists recognized, the ones who promoted the Constitution, that, in fact, executive authority is always needed. You know, you can have a democracy, you can have a Republican form of government, and they were dedicated to making that work. Um, but you have to squarely confront the downside, and the downside is that uh, if, uh, you know, if many are in charge of something or many supposedly, quote-unquote, own it, no one does, as Aristotle said long ago about communism. Uh, and the, that that's the problem. The, the problem is that uh, you need uh, one, and you know any form of government will have some mixture, as as Aristotle said thousands of years ago, of rule rule by one person, a few people, or many people, uh, and you can mix those up a little bit. But you know, even a king, for instance, a king does have to deal with popular consent to some degree, because at some point, if you're if you're cruel enough and people don't like you, they'll start to rebel. Um, you know, they certainly have to care a lot about what the few, uh, the few wealthy, the aristocracy uh, thinks in, in that society. Um, they have to deal with that, you know, directly. 
so you, you don't get rid of, it's very hard to get rid of completely any of these elements. And so in our form of government, there was a recognition that, look, at the end of the day, the people can vote the bums in and out, but we're going to need executive power. And it wasn't clear whether you'd have one man, you know, one man in charge of the United States government. That wasn't clear. Um, so what enabled executive power in America, what enabled the presidency to be the presidency that we know is the fact that George Washington goes to the convention and everyone, A, so we have a constitution, the constitution that they, they, they passed in 1786, and, 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 that, and that the office, the presidency there is much more broadly conceived of than it would have been without him. Okay. So, uh, you know, he goes, as soon as the constitution is passed, uh, a complete political shit show starts. I mean, all of a sudden... Uh, the entire country is going to erupt into this vigorous debate over whether each state is going to pass and accept this new constitution. The fact that Washington is for it uh, helps it out immensely. You know, in the ratification debates, Ameri the American press is in some ways just as raucous as it is now, just as belligerent as it is now, just as full of scandal uh, and, you know, the, everything you, you see now, I mean, they would tar and feather people. Things got physical. The first thing the Federalists did was translate it into German because they thought in Pennsylvania they could send it to some of the Germans and there would be easy votes on their side. Um, you know, everyone's activated. Uh, and in the midst of this, it's very hard for the anti-Federalists who are against the Constitution for whatever reason um, to say anything bad about Washington. Uh, this is, even though they talk real bad in the press about each other, you know, all the other guys... They're constantly going back and forth with crazy rumors, terrible accusations and names. But Washington is someone that no one, you know, they're not going to touch. So what you will see, which, which shows uh, his status in, in American society at the time, you will see people sort of hint like, you know what, they kind of fooled the old man. Uh, that's what happened here. It's not that Washington's a bad guy. It's just, you know, Hamilton, Madison, these guys, they're, they're bad guys. And they, they got one over on the old man and, and kind of fooled him. He shouldn't, have, he shouldn't have been doing this. He doesn't really understand that this uh, Constitution will lead us into tyranny or whatever. Yeah, okay. So the, the Constitution prevails um, and uh, with, you know, with Washington's blessing, um, it's not guaranteed that it would pass, um, but it, it does. Uh, it gets through, and it's uh, there's a lot of celebration, and people are willing to uh, you know to give it a try, and excited, and, and in part because uh, people know who the first president's going to be, and uh, of course, as the first president, he's now going to lay down an example of uh, how to actually wield executive power. Uh, in a Republican form of government. And so, uh, you, you know, you get, you, you get his two terms and his conscious understanding, just as he had to do his entire, way, his entire life, um, you know, just as he memorized the rules of civility to figure out how to act on the frontier, just as he, um, you know, was thinking about designing uniforms uh, in the military when he had to, uh, be in charge of an army that had to be created out of nothing. Uh, he knows that he's laying down the markers. He's laying down the standards. He's laying down the foundation. He is founding. He is refounding. He is wielding regime-level power. Uh, he has the sort of power that can influence the very structure of this nation uh, that helps form it and birth it into being. And he's constantly thinking about the effect of his actions, the use and channeling of that power to create this new order. So take the Thanksgiving Proclamation in 1789. I mean, this is the actual first, uh, you know, first Thanksgiving, uh, I guess you could say. Um, it's, it's astounding um, when you read it today. I mean, of course, the whole thing would be a... Uh, some kind of violation to be illegal uh, for the president to, <laughs> to say such a thing today, it would um, <clears throat> it would cause all all manner of uh, uh, fainting spells. But he says uh, by the president of the United States of America, a proclamation, seventeen eighty nine. Whereas it is the duty of all nations to acknowledge the providence, there's that word again, 
where it is the duty of all nations to acknowledge the providence of Almighty God, to obey His will, to be grateful for His benefits, and humbly to implore His protection and favor. And whereas both houses of Congress have by their joint committee requested me to recommend the people of the United States a day of public thanksgiving and prayer to be observed by acknowledging with grateful hearts the many signal favors of Almighty God, especially by affording them an opportunity peaceably to establish a form of government for their safety and happiness. Now, safety is, uh, uh, you know, the, the, the low rung, the obvious um, that which out, that without which nothing, the sine qua non. Uh, if you don't have safety, you don't have any kind of government. So that's like the base level foundation of what's needed. And happiness is at the top, sort of the top of the pyramid. Ultimately, uh, you want people to be able to pursue happiness. You're trying to fulfill people in community, in any human community. To You're trying to attain happiness as the end. So, uh, you know, they've established a form of government for their safety and happiness, and they need to thank God for this. And... Uh, some of the language he uses here is 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 interesting. I mean, what are they thanking God for? Uh, for his kind care and protection of the people of this country previous to their becoming a nation. For this, the fact that they made it that far. For the signal and manifold mercies and the favorable interpositions of his providence, again, which we experienced in the course and conclusion of the late war. For the great degree of tranquility, union, tranquility, peace, right? Union, public, com the common good, uh, uh, joining together. And plenty, which we have since enjoyed, for the peaceable and rational, rational manner in which we have been enabled to establish constitutions of government for our safety and happiness. All the states, by the way, had to create their own constitutions, right, after, uh, after the, the rebellion, after the revolution. They all had to go back to the drawing board and figure it out uh, you know, how to alter their constitutions, their form of government. So America's unique in that you have a discernible uh, national argument about forms of government going on for really 150, 200 years. Uh, you know, uh, <laughs> the founding is, is, a, is something that's present on people's minds from the very beginning because they're starting from nothing uh, on, this, on this frontier. Uh, so so um, this peaceable, peaceful, peaceable and rational manner in which they've been able to establish the constitutions is remarkable. Uh, and particularly the national one now lately instituted. For the civil and religious liberty with which we are blessed, the means we have of acquiring and diffusing useful knowledge, and in general for all the great various favors which God has been pleased to confer upon us. So this part next, I think, is, is, is interesting. Um, and also that we may unite in most humbly offering our prayers and supplications to the great Lord and ruler of nations and beseech him to pardon our national and other transgressions. I mean, he's actually asking pardon of God for national sins. Um, and then a uh, positive, to enable us all to perform our several and relative duties properly and punctually, yada, yada, yada. So... Uh, at the very end, uh, to promote the knowledge and practice of true religion and virtue and the increase of science in the general sense of knowledge uh, among them and us, and generally to grant on a mankind such a degree of temporal prosperity as he alone knows best, there is his thanksgiving message. And in this you see um, his role and his understanding of the necessity of a theological vision. Even if uh, it's not clear himself what he ultimately uh, believed, um, right, whether he was a Christian uh, or not, um, you know, I mean, who knows his soul? Like I said, he went to church, didn't go to communion, didn't talk about uh, it that much in his life, but he would say these sorts of things in, in letters and publicly, um, and he understood that the theological vision was necessary. There is a God, there is a providence in human affairs, and we have to acknowledge it. And we have to promote, you know, the knowledge and practice of true religion and virtue. And virtue, good habits of being and religion go together. Um, and so, you know, there's almost a practicality to this theological vision uh, in, in his case. Because as politician, as the political leader, uh, you realize without this, all of, all, everything's going to fall apart. Uh, so he goes out of his way uh, to make this Thanksgiving uh, proclamation. Well, so ends the second part of our three-part series on 
George Washington and the American Future. Uh, I hope you enjoyed that. Uh, next time, we're going to go into uh, the rest of his presidency, the farewell address to America, and uh, reflect on what his life and example might mean for us looking forward into the 21st century. I, I want to go back to this notion of the Thanksgiving Day proclamation, though, and just uh, make sure you, you reflect upon the kind of, uh, the kind of you know, regime we used to have, the kind of thing that, that existed in the old republic. And I think it's very easy to just say, well, it was you know, liberalism and uh, the founding was, was sort of messed up, and that led to uh, you know, all the evils we have today. And when you really look back on, uh, a lot of people on the right say that these days, sadly. But when you really, really look back at this Thanksgiving proclamation and you see what someone who, you know, maybe wasn't even a Orthodox Christian, uh, but what he thought was necessary to say, and at least in, in large part believed uh, when it came to providence, is, uh, is remarkable. And so if you're, you are listening, I'm just going to do you the service of reading the entire Thanksgiving Day Proclamation of 1789, making a few uh, additional remarks about it, and then uh, we're out. So this says, it says, Thanksgiving Proclamation of 1789, by the President of the United States of America, a proclamation. Whereas it is the duty of all nations to acknowledge the providence of Almighty God, to obey his will, to be grateful for his benefits, and humbly to implore his protection and favor. And whereas both houses of Congress have by their joint committee requested me to recommend to the people of the United States a day of public thanksgiving and prayer to be observed by acknowledging with grateful hearts the many signal favors of Almighty God, especially by affording them an opportunity peaceful, peaceably to establish a form of government for their safety and happiness. Now, therefore, I do recommend and assign Thursday, the 26th day of November, next, to be devoted by the people of these states to the service of that great and glorious being who is the beneficent author of all the good that was, that is, or that will be, that we may then all unite in rendering unto him our sincere and humble thanks for his kind care and protection of the people of this country previous to their becoming a nation. For the signal and manifold mercies and the favorable interpositions of his providence, which we experienced in the course and conclusion of the late war, for the great degree of tranquility, union, and plenty, which we have since enjoyed, for the peaceable and rational manner in which we have been enabled to establish constitutions of government for our safety and happiness, and particularly the national one now lately instituted, for the civil and religious liberty with which we are blessed, and the means we have of acquiring and diffusing useful knowledge, and in general for all the great and various favors which he hath been pleased to confer upon us. And also that we may then unite in most humbly offering our prayers and supplications to the great Lord and ruler of nations, and beseech him to pardon our national and other transgressions to enable us all, whether in public or private stations, to, to perform our several and relative duties properly and punctually, to render our national government a blessing to all the people by constantly being a government of wise, just, and constitutional laws, discreetly and faithfully executed and obeyed, to protect and guide all sovereigns and nations, especially such as have shown kindness unto us, and to bless them with good government, peace, and concord, to promote, to promote the knowledge and practice of true religion and virtue, and the increase of science among them and us, and generally to grant unto all mankind such a degree of temporal prosperity as he alone knows to be best. Given under my hand at the city of New York, the third day of October in the year of our Lord, 1789, George Washington. Now, uh, a word from our sponsor. <laughs> uh, joking, joking. But that would be, that would be this Gold River tea I keep hearing about, right? Gold River, co.com. Shameless, shameless. Stephen Koss would approve. Um, 
I, I want to say a few words about Thanksgiving, uh, and then uh, and then we'll peace out. Um, I'm tacking it onto this lecture, uh, but it's appropriate for me to do so in, in talking about uh, Washington in the future. Um, I have to say that the importance of the holiday is is sort of interesting. It sort of appears uh, in Washington's experience and in Lincoln's. And I'll leave in the show notes a a guide to Thanksgiving. There's a number of articles that I published uh, maybe in 2018, I think, at the American Mind on Thanksgiving by a number of conservative people and historians that go into the meaning of Thanksgiving, the history of Thanksgiving, the Thanksgiving wars, um, as Pete Peterson, no relation of Pepperdine writes, a number of great articles about Thanksgiving from the American Mind that we'll, they'll put in the, in the show, show notes. Um, but I, I would say that this is a a very American holiday that if we were to reach back into the past in the spirit of these courses, I could teach a whole course about Thanksgiving and, and find something that we could build upon. Uh, you know, one of these one of these ruins of uh, once great civilization that is still strong that we could build uh, we could build out from. It would be Thanksgiving because Thanksgiving from the very beginning, as you've just seen, is a a national uh, prayer day, right? It's a, it's a day for the nation as a nation to think of itself in relation to God, uh, to ask for forgiveness for transgressions and to give thanks for what we have. And even now, right, what we have is a hell of a lot when it comes to material things. Uh, we're spiritually impoverished, but as Mother Teresa said, uh, you know, we are a third world country, really, when it comes to the things of the spirit. But when it comes to material things, we are still blessed. And we are in a position where we can have a lot of influence for the good if we but change our hearts and minds and direct them the right way. The importance of this, uh, you know, this religious holiday is not, it, it's a sort of civic religion, yes, but I mean, this really was uh, Christian. It really was giving thanks to God. And when you go back to um, the first Thanksgiving and the pilgrims and their relationship with the Native Americans, of course, that whole psyop against uh, that is against that uh, story that was told to so many Americans growing up is, is just full of lies. I mean, this really was a kind of miraculous thing where out of the nowhere, uh, they're, they're Squanto, the Native American, arises who's actually traveled uh, through Europe uh, in a, a sort of amazing life story and is able to translate and speak the language of the settlers because he's been uh, to England and he appears out of nowhere as their savior and helps them, you know, save them and translate between the tribes and everyone survives uh, the winter, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, amazing story of people who really believed in God's providence as opposed to most Christians today who don't really seem to, to, to take it very seriously, uh, sadly. So Thanksgiving is, is also a day of family. There's a kind of a, a warmth about it, coziness about it, even though we're, we're all broken and many of us, uh, you know, sadly have broken families. It's a day when, uh, you know, people like to get together as families. And so it has this national significance and everything is sort of aligned. Everything's, all the, all the parts are correct in the holiday of Thanksgiving. And it's really something we could build off of in a positive way for the future. Uh, you know, a nation before God, um, grateful for everything that's happened for them as a nation. Uh, B, you have families together um, and that, and you're celebrating the families being together and being grateful to f before God for what they have. Uh, in, in both cases, it's a time to turn um, to, uh, to God and ask for forgiveness uh, and the grace to carry on, and then expressing that gratitude by taking uh, some time and, and just being together. And for me, you know, every holiday, when you celebrate holidays, which is an important thing, a human thing to do, uh, to develop the celebration of a holiday, there's always, uh, you know, all the workflow and everything I'm doing, I think, oh, there's no way I can really uh, take this time off. Uh, and this, these are the sort of thoughts I've always, I've always had. But Thanksgiving is one of those days where, like, you get to a point, whether it's, uh, you know, sometime that morning when you have to help uh, get everything ready uh, or the, the night before where you just go over the waterfall and you realize, like, okay, I can't actually work now. I have to do X, Y, and Z. And you let the holidays flow take over. And you just go with the flow of the holiday. And... You know, in, done in the right way. I mean, obviously, people are too lazy not getting enough done, and that's another problem. But, but, uh, but if you really are a workaholic uh, <laughs> or crazy like I am, you you need to stop yourself and you let yourself go over the flow of the holiday, and it, it washes over you, and you sort of enter another time zone. Do you know what I mean? 
you enter into a different kind of time where, uh, you know, family is together. Um, you're focused on preparing the meal or helping with the kids or whatever, uh, you know, do whatever fun stuff you're doing. Like it just, it just, it has its own time, its own, it's outside of normal time. And Thanksgiving is sort of a rough and ready, rough, rough and ready, easy way uh, to get into that zone. At least it has been for me. And, uh, you know, our kids now, they really like the fact we're always going to have other people over. Uh, you know, sometimes we roll our eyes at that. How many people we're having over, uh, how many kids are coming over. But there's an aspect to it that um, that is just really special to them. They love the fact that uh, they have different dishes that are their favorite. They're going to be made. Right. And this this in other words, just leaning into the holiday, as they say today, uh, can really have beneficial results for your heart, your mind, your soul that will recreate you. Right. Recreations should recreate you uh, in a, in a special way. And especially if it's sacralized, if you, if you make it sacred in some way and incorporate, uh, something deeper, because the whole point of holidays is to take you out of normal time and space and, and help you tap into something deeper and higher that helps make you, you know, happier and healthier. And even if, uh, you know, so that's why, you know, not overeating, right. The rest of the time, should we be so strong, uh, and then overeating a little bit, like having a party, having a, having some excess in, in c- certain punctuated times uh, around which, you know, you bring all these elements together. That's human. That's what culture is. And so Thanksgiving really is, I, I hate these cynics who want to denigrate everything. And it's like, it's better over there. Uh, uh, what Gilbert and Sullivan have a line in one of their silly musicals about a century plus ago. Uh, about the uh, the idiot who praises with enthusiastic tone all centuries, but this and every country but his own. And I, I, there's a lot of that today, and I, I get it because it's declining empire. Because we're you know children on the ruins of a once great civilization. But I have to say, uh, you know, you got to take what fragments you can. Shore the fragments against your ruins. I mean, what do we got? We got Thanksgiving. That's something important. And I, I've seen this, uh, my wife's family, actually, uh, they go to Mass, they go to church on Thanksgiving uh, in the morning, which is, you know, I mean, in the a.m. <laughs> it could be later in the a.m. It probably will be in our house this week. Um, but that is a really important uh, kind of deal. Like, you go in and, you you know, you, you, uh, you, you set the course for the day. Uh, kids may complain, but who cares? That's what they're there for. You just force them to do it anyway. And you go and you're able to, for a brief time, uh, you know, write yourself uh, before something higher than yourself. Take stock of where you are in time and place. And especially, you know, uh, especially express gratitude. Um, If you don't express gratitude and you don't every once in a while force yourself to stop and be thankful, uh, you really, you really run into problems in life. Um, you know, things start to, uh, I don't know, they start to pile up in the soul, and uh, bitterness, resentment comes in. Uh, we we struggle with this, and um, you know, you you gotta have time to uh, express uh, to express gratitude, and uh, you know, I, I can't I can't emphasize this enough. It's not like some uh, airy fairy kind of thing I'm talking about. It, it's very real, and if you reflect on Thanksgiving, you can see it. Let me, let me just let me just end with this. Um, uh, something you know, talking about Washington's example here and what he understood uh, over seven centuries ago. Saint Thomas Aquinas summed up what I think Western civilization understood to be the natural debt of gratitude that all human beings owe to God, family, and country. And he said this. He said this. He said. Man becomes a debtor to other men in various ways, according to their various excellence and the various benefits received from them. Now, the principles of our being and government, the principles of our being and government are our parents in our country that have given us birth and nourishment. I mean, right? Your parents give you birth. They give you being. Government helps you be as well. That's that safety we were talking about. Uh, so there's a certain parental like safety aspect uh, being you're able to exist because you're protected by men who are willing to die. Uh, you're able to exist because of your your parents. Uh, and so, you know, great. Uh, and, and then also uh, those things govern us. Your parents for a while govern you. And, and if they've 
governed you in some way well, or sometimes even not well, those the way they governed you sort of sticks with you the rest of your life. And of course, your country's laws you're always under unless you leave it. So, you know, principles of our being in government are our parents and our country that have given us birth and nourishment. Consequently, man is debtor. We, we owe a debt to. Consequently, man is debtor chiefly to his parents and his country after God. Wherefore, just as it belongs to religion to give worship to God, so does it belong to piety in the second place to give worship to one's parents and one's country. So here's, you know, God, family, country, St. Thomas Aquinas, uh, you know, uh, a long time ago in the Middle Ages. So I think um, the American founding generation certainly understood what those meant, words meant. Uh, we don't understand what they mean today uh, because, A, we nix religion or at least uh, monotheist, re- monotheist religion. Uh, we've replaced uh, religion with uh, so kind of the wokeness, uh, kind of woke paganism. Uh, and uh, we don't, country is just denigrated. Um, and uh, it's really sad. And then, of course, we, we are actively destroying the family and the rights of parents. Um, but, you know, so for us, immersed in a culture of distractive decay and systematically miseducated to reflexively deconstruct purpose and deny principle, we find the meaning of those words much harder to understand. And the premise is, is really this for Aquinas and I think for the Western tradition. The premise is that we, owe all, we all owe debts based on what we have freely received, right? The principles of our being in government or that, that from and out of which our very lives and way of life arise and exist are our parents and our country. The form of government in which we were born, no less than our parents, give us our existence and allow us to maintain it all while shaping our character or who we are and can become. Thus, the extent to which we are all debtors to the founders, for instance, is hard to fathom, even though their regime has been you know, <laughs> stretched beyond recognition over the centuries. Um, nearly every earthly good we possess, nonetheless, um, you know, and, and nearly every spiritual good as well, isn't because they allowed it to exist here, isn't the churches to exist here, is in some way ours by means of and within the regime the founders wrought. So all the ironic and increasingly vitriolic sentiments one reads on national holidays, you know, ridiculing our nation's obviously very real flaws, are much like ridiculing or pointing out your mother's faults on Mother's Day. They're saying you, you can't quite you know, celebrate Valentine's Day with your significant other on account of her imperfections, which you proceed to list on Valentine's Day. See how long your relationship lasts. And then telling everyone else that they are making idols of their mother or their girlfriend because they celebrate these days without such childish impudence. I just, you know, we're not, we're not usually able to directly repay nor even fully understand the breadth nor the depth, depth of what we have received from those who have truly nourished and taught us. Ne- never mind those who in some real way have sacrificed for us, sometimes to the point of death. We are often left with the attempt to give what we received from those who cared for us to those under our own care. This form of giving is often the only way open to us to pay our debts in this life. If you've had a great teacher, a great mentor, uh, you know, a, a great person in your family who helped you, you know this is true. You can't repay them, but you can pay it forward in some way. This is also why gratitude entails giving and receiving properly. We learn and can actually grow in generosity by receiving it. By receiving it. Allowing ourselves to receive it. As Aquinas also says, citing Aristotle, he says, quote, the philosopher, that's Aristotle, he calls him the philosopher, says in the Ethics, we should repay those who are gracious to us by being gracious to them in return. And this is done by repaying more than we have received. Therefore, gratitude should incline to do something greater. Gratitude should incline to do something greater. With sincerity and without irony, let us all give gratitude this Thanksgiving to what and whom it is due in our lives without apology or qualification. May you and I both incline to do something greater. Happy Thanksgiving. 
Okay, folks, that's all we got for the day. This is the second part in this uh, lecture series about George Washington and the American future. Tune in next time for the rest of his life and some final reflections on Washington and Caesarism and leadership, the leadership we need in the 21st century. Uh, if you enjoy this, let me know. Uh, in order to do more of these, I'm probably going to have to, uh, uh, you know, I don't know, put up a paywall or something as they take more time and I'm revealing the secret teachings of, uh, you know, at least a summary version of them of what I talk about behind scene. But uh, I hope you enjoyed it. It was a blast to, uh, to, to lay it out like this. And I hope to do more of this kind of content in the future. Again, please, if you like it, rate, review. only takes a few seconds. Helps us out a lot. And, and send me a note uh, on Twitter at DOCMJP. Uh, Elon Musk's uh, <laughs> Twitter that's terrifying everyone now. It's okay to get on there and just send me a DM and we can connect. Uh, but uh, let me know what you'd like me to explore. That's always helpful. And I hope you have a holy, happy, healthy, and blessed Thanksgiving this year. Thanks. <laughs>